Hi, and welcome to All Things Cozy with Matt and Jillian. We are a bi-weekly podcast about everything that is warm, soft, and comforting. This week, we're introducing Socrates to Christie as we discuss the philosophy of cozy mysteries with Dr. Brian Clack, professor of philosophy at the University of San Diego and author of the books Philosophy and the Human Condition and Love, Drugs, Art, Religion, The Pains and Consolations of Existence. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Well, thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. I'm very excited to be with you. We're excited too. We're excited and we're, we're thoughtful. We're in a philosophical <laughs> state of mind. Goodness. What more could you want? <laughs> <laughs> um, but before we dive in to philosophy and the cozy mystery, which is like, I'm, I'm really excited about this topic because it's a different angle than we usually talk about the book, which is pretty direct, usually in about craft. So Again, thank you so much for joining us today to yeah. discuss that. But thank before you. we arrive to our class, our philosophy class, we like to check in with what's making us feel cozy during quarantine. So I've been doing little home improvements and I bought a new patio set so I can sit outside because it's hard, obviously hard to go outside during these times. And so just like a nice little thing that I did, there's no space because I'm, it's really cramped. It's hard to explain my apartment, but I'm on the second floor. So right outside the door, we put the patio and our neighbors have um, bamboo trees. So it's pretty private and that's nice. And then I also got new pillows and has changed my life. There's nothing better than a fresh new pillow. And I got new uh, pillowcases as well. I can share in the, in the group what kind of um, pillowcases and pillows they are because they are awesome. They're just light and fresh and airy and thick. And it just gives me something to look forward to when I go to sleep. <laughs> it's, it's just, it, it really is. Like I look forward to it during the day thinking about these pillows. And I don't know if it's just oh because God. I've been like locked in the apartment for so long and I'm going a little bit uh, mad. But I, I truly, it's just something about l- lying your head on a fresh pillow gives me, as I always say, pep in my step. Well, you're making me feel very envious here. The, the pillows we have here are so old. It's like sleeping on a sheet of paper. So you have to have about 50 of these pillows piled up to get anything resembling a, a cushiony feel. Yeah, ours were really old as well. And it's just a thought of sleeping on, I don't want to say how old these pillows are. Um, it'd be horrifying to all. So I won't, I, won't reveal, I, I will not reveal it, but, uh, I just said to myself, you know what, today's the day I'm ordering new pillows, ordering new pillowcases. And next time Matt, you cat sit, you'll have a nice new pillow to rest your head on. So another thing to look forward to. Oh, well, thank you. Well, it's funny how <laughs> long we deprive ourselves of like fresh linens and pillows. It, it is disgusting to think about and reflect on my own pillow situation here <laughs> and how in dire need we are of new pillows and pillowcases and just bed sheets, period. Oh, yeah. But somehow, you know, just live with this crap. <laughs> yeah. And it's no, such it's a small, easy thing to improve, but we don't do it. And it's a, Jillian, I'm glad you brought that up. It's a good reminder that just little quick life changes like that can really make all the difference. Yeah, it, it's true. So if you're, you know, on thinking about getting new pillows, take that leap. Go ahead and do it. Jump into that pillow. Yeah. <laughs> What's making me feel cozy is senior parades for graduation and mm. virtual graduation, which I'm as surprised as you are saying that because nothing about a virtual graduation sounds cozy. Uh, <laughs> but um, as our listeners know, I'm a teacher and I teach at a high school. For our graduating seniors, the class of 2020, because of the pandemic, they didn't have a traditional graduation ceremony. 
And so we had a virtual graduation video and uh, kind of to have the in-person slightly element. There was also a senior parade where they were given caps and gowns and stoles and were outside their house. And that was the coziest thing because there was that human connection, even though we stayed in our cars (laughs) and just annoyed the neighbors by excessive honking. Um, It was really heartwarming to actually see the students with their families. They would stand outside in the curb with their families and their friends. And we'd come by with our cars that were decorated and, you know, it's. I have to confess, when I would see this stuff on the news, I would kind of say to myself, that looks ridiculous. I can't imagine ever wanting that. And then I participated in one, and, I, and then I got it immediately. It's just a really fun thing to do, and it's just acknowledging the accomplishment. And it was a reminder that, you know, graduation is not really about the ceremony at all. It's just about that human connection and us acknowledging each other and our accomplishments and about love, basically. And not to sound horribly cheesy, but all those things reminded me of that. And it was a really cozy thing. There's nothing cheesy about that. That's lovely. I think these students obviously deserve to be celebrated despite, you know, the circumstances and finding creative solutions to do that is awesome. But I do chuckle at the thought of you honking because I just can't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we're big honkers. When every time I honk my car, it's by accidentally bump into the steering wheels. Even if I'm in a rage, I just cannot honk. But I think it's sweet that you, you know, got in your car honking away their decorations and singing with their families. It's a really nice image to think about. Do you know, I have never honked the horn in my car ever. In any Congratulations. That's, that's actually a huge accomplishment. Yeah, I actually, I sort of disapprove of honking of horns in general, <laughs> I mean, in, for any circumstances. Are you philosophically but, opposed to it? Yeah, I don't, I don't really like noise, and it's a bit too noisy for me, a car horn, so I, I studiously avoid ever using it. <laughs> yeah, I'm more of a flipping of the bird and then, then being terrified when I accidentally pull up to the person. <laughs> Not very cozy, but... Uh, yeah, I don't like horns. No, well, it turns out in that kind of parade context, I love honking my horn. It was just, yeah. it came naturally, blasting music out the windows. I became a totally loud, obnoxious person <laughs> overnight. And the other thing, too, is not everyone was happy about that. There were neighbors who were clearly disgruntled at all the noise. Oh, and there was boy. one guy who was trying to go down the street that we were kind of blocking with <laughs> dual parades. There were two... Because our, our students all live in the area. So, like, we were blocking both sides of the street. This guy's going crazy, like, get out of the street. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we ha- I, I'm sitting there like, this is a, first of all, we're not going to be here more than five minutes. We're just like, it's going to be a quick thing. Like, what kind of dark place are you in that you're going to get out and yell at a graduation parade? That's a yeah. whole other problem. But I saw on the news yesterday that there was another person that shot an, uh, a pellet gun at a graduation parade. So some people, this really sets them off. Jeez. So I'm glad, you know, it, there was no um, no violence. <laughs> but there was one angry man. Jeez, Louise. I don't know where one would get a pellet gun. To bring things back to Cozy, let's check in with Brian. What's making you feel cozy this week? Well, it's a little song, actually. Um, I... I have a, a couple of goddaughters uh, back in England, and I usually go back to England uh, over the summer and, and see them, but because of you know obvious reasons, I'm I'm something of an exile here. And uh, but I, I touch base with with uh, my goddaughters every now and then, and the youngest of them is learning about the solar system, and she's learning about it by listening to this uh, 
little song which her mother sent over to me. And I, I'm just absolutely entranced by it. It's just so beautiful and so sweet. And then uh, my goddaughter, Eula, uh, is sort of drawing pictures of the planets and learning everything about them. And I, I find that all very, very sort of touching. I get a lovely warm feeling over me when I think about learning about our, our universe and drawing pictures of planets with little smiley faces. That's exactly the sort of thing that I like in the world. I wish there was more of it. And the song is just lovely, I think. Let's listen to the Solar System song. I am Mercury. I'm the closest planet to the sun. I'm a ball of iron. I have no moon. I am Mercury. It's such a calming song, and I really love the the little sounds between the planets yes. piece, like the doot, doot, do. There's something so peaceful about it. <laughs> yes. I love the singer's voice. He has an amazing voice. Yeah, he, he reminds me of a, a singer from the 70s called Bill Fay, who was sort of disappeared and became a, a janitor for about 40 years and then was um, rediscovered recently. And it's a very beautiful, soft gentle voice and i increasingly like that as i get older i see one of the strange things about this song is i thought oh this is really lovely so i looked on it uh, on youtube and you know that they have this like thumbs up thumbs down thing for if you approve or disapprove oh, yes. of something yeah <laughs> like, like you're like you're you know caesar at the, a gladiatorial contest <laughs> so. and this thing had Twenty thousand dislikes. Well, was, wait, wait. <laughs> how could you? I mean, on, on at its best, this is possibly the greatest thing ever. At its worst, <laughs> it's it's sort of innocuous. And for people to think, oh, I really hate that. Twenty thousand people. I mean, that's a kind of medium-sized sporting arena of people <laughs> disapproving of of that song. Look, this is a strange world that we live in. So I don't know why it would be. I mean, perhaps it's because it oh seems rather melancholic and. And well, slow. Maybe the drawing people like, will admit the graphics are a little intense. <laughs> <laughs> the eyes of the planets. Well, the, but, the drawings, yeah, they, they are a little bit. They look kind of like zombified heads, and, but the, and, the, and the arms kind of stick out like almost like they're mutant beings. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll never be able to watch this thing again. <laughs> Sorry. But you know what? The song, I truly, I will be singing this to myself. I know when we, we hang up or zoom yes. out or whatever we do. And, the first thing um, Julian's going to say when we hang up is, I am Mercury. <laughs> no, I have no moon. Yeah. Seriously, that you will never get that song out of your head. That's so true, Julian. You, you don't have a moon. Actually, you have one moon. One moon? <laughs> It's funny to think about people disliking that and taking the time to do that. That is just the toxic place of the internet. And comments yeah. are turned off, so maybe you got a little dicey. Yeah, down. <laughs> yeah I was, I'm so happy the comments were turned off. That would have ruined my day. Right. Well, thank you and for sharing. I, I really genuinely love it. It's, like you said, very gentle and sweet. And, and we learned a lot about the solar system. Yes, that's right. And my goddaughter will be absolutely delighted to know that she's being, her name is mentioned in the, in the United States. Oh, <laughs> that's cool. That's very sweet. Yeah, it's it's if you have kids and you know we're all teaching at home these days, it's and you're on the solar system. This is a good resource. Absolutely. But talking about things that are beautiful and maybe even so beautiful, they're as terrifying as a sun with arms and big eyes. There is this relationship between cozy mysteries and some darker subjects. I think, and I think we can discuss cozy mysteries in the context of being something that are 
enjoyable and beautiful in their own way, but they're also interesting to the extent that they flirt with really dark subjects like death. Brian, really happy to have you here to kind of dive into that line that that genre balances. But before we get into that, can you just sort of give us a primer on what is the sublime? And, and when we talk about things being beautiful, what would that mean as well? That's a, that's a really good question. A lot of what we want to talk about today is to do with definitions of words um, and how fluid those things can can be. I mean, cozy is one word, which I think is sort of calling out for a particular kind of uh, precise definition. And um, it's, it, it came to mind that it's similar in some ways to the idea of the beautiful, at least as this is expressed by um, a philosopher that I've been working on, uh, Edmund Burke, 18th century philosopher. And I found myself thinking about how his work could apply to the illumination of um, all things cozy. So I just thought we could have a chat about, about that stuff. And, and the segue into that is uh, about the nature of a, of a cozy mystery, either a book that you read or a, or a TV show that you might watch. And the question is, why would we, why would we want to read that? Why, it's an odd thing to do. Well, I mean, first of all, it's an odd thing to, to read anything fictional when you think about it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not just saying that as a sort of Philistine thing. Um, it's like it, we do weird things as a species. And one of those things is we enjoy reading fictional narratives, a load of pages bound up in a book, and we go and sit by a swimming pool when we're on vacation and read these things. But why do we do it? It's just a, something entirely unreal. So that raises a whole host of questions. I'm not saying that in any critical way. I mean, I love, I love reading novels, but why I do it, why I enjoy it is an, is an old question. And then you get into this issue of why we would read something, uh, something about a, a crime that takes place which is what the, uh, you know, the cozy mystery genre, which I, I think of in terms of people like G.K. Chesterton and you know, Father Brown or the, the um, Miss Marple um, series. Uh, there's a wonderful piece about this by Sarah Manguso in uh, the New York Times uh, recently, mm-hmm. where she uh, talks about why she's enjoying um, these mysteries during this particular time. And I, I noted some, some words of hers here. And she says... Um, she's talking about watching these on, on TV. She says, watching them feels restorative, like taking a nap. The cozy's most alluring feature is a world in which death itself appears soothingly make-believe. So you take something which is really sort of terrifying, which is death, and it becomes something quite soft. She refers to these things, therefore, as smoke screens. They've got a kind of palliative quality in a, in a, in a difficult time. I, I kind of like that idea that in a difficult time we're embracing something which is soft and then, you know, why we do that. Well, just to say, you mentioned Sarah Manguso. I don't know if you're um, aware, but she wrote this book called The Two Kinds of Decay about um, cr- chronic illness and being really sick. I don't know that. Yeah, I think you say might like it just as a little side note. So it's, it got, it's not that surprising that she would write something, an article like that based on just how the, um, her category of work and what she writes about. So that's, it's interesting. So I'm now I'm even more interested to read this New York Times article. Well, I'm really interested to read what she says about chronic illness now. She yeah. writes this very well. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's a, it's a hard read because uh, she got quite sick um, for, for years and she was only in her early 20s. But um, she writes about it in a way that is um, digestible and uh, c- c- 
I guess yeah, you can say comforting in a way. So you should definitely check that out. Well, I certainly will. Brian, to go back to your question about why do we read it all? Yeah. You know, I, I think as an educator, I often think about reading fiction as, and just storytelling in general, as facilitating learning. Yeah. Even that song we listen to with the planets, right? Mm-hmm. We personify the planets. It helps us. Yeah. The music obviously helps us learn, but also giving them character some and making them human somehow makes them more understandable. Yes. And so I, I can see reading as being, even fictional stuff, being really vital for learning and understanding each other in the world. And I think Cozy Mysteries may do that, although my instinct is to say that they don't do it as much as other texts, because if I really ask myself what initially drew me to Cozy Mysteries, the truth is, is that they seemed absurd. <laughs> and because there, there is this sort of absurd juxtaposition of somebody who is so close to a murder, they usually almost get murdered themselves and somehow feel brave enough to solve it with little or no experience. I mean, in a cozy mystery, even the, even like the place it's happening is kind of ironic in its own way. Usually it's a really small, quiet town that's idyllic and, and there's this really dark thing happening in a cozy mystery, like somebody's dead (laughs) and yet nobody curses and people don't even, you know, take the Lord's name in vain (laughs) And there are whole chapters on either a hobby or domestic life. And so there's something almost absurd about that, but maybe there's also something just hyper true about it as well. Like maybe death is as mundane as knitting. There's something there about how those things are maybe more on equal footing than we would initially assume. Yeah, that's fascinating. A couple of things that spring to mind from what you've said. My my mother loves this show in England called The Midsummer Murders. I don't know if this takes place in... I don't know if you can get this in America. But it's a, it, all of it takes place in this very small, sleepy town. But there's uh, so many murders. I mean, if, it, you know, if they, the murder rate in that town would be terrible. I mean, nobody would live there. Because <laughs> every week someone's killed. It's, it's such a, a thing that it's, it's called Cabot Cove Syndrome in the Cozy Mystery oh. community because, off of Murder, She Wrote, because even right. some Cozy Mystery authors make a point to avoid it by having their sleuth travel. And in fact, that's what happened with Murder, She Wrote, is Jessica Fletcher ends up going to New York a lot because they're like, we can't keep killing off people in Cabot Cove. It's not gonna make it. <laughs> even, even our viewers who love the show and are willing to suspend disbelief may finally have a breaking point, and we can't push them too far <laughs> of course i think about this in, in relation to the the theory of literature and art that freud has which is this art and literature for freud are always escapist it, it presents a world as we want it to be rather than the world that we're in so it's it's a better preferable alternative so all all crimes are solved um everyone you know everyone gets their just desserts um and that's a, a preferable version of the world than the one we find ourselves in. And that for him would be the appeal of this kind of stuff. Yeah. It has that sense of order because in the actual world, crime is often uh, nonsensical, unjust and random. Yeah. But in, in books, especially cozy mysteries, they're, they're very formulaic. And I think that's part of what's comforting, even if it does, it hinges on a death, that death is always glossed over and never even really described. 
which, which is interesting as uh, well. It's like it almost never even happened. Yeah. That's right. Mangusa makes the point in her article, again, about the, the finding of the body in, in the, the, the cozy mystery. It's always a very, almost that's a very gentle. I've had the pulse is taken and they say, ah, oh, they're gone. And there's no, you know, the, the crime scene investigators aren't there clearing up all the, you know, all the mess. Mm. So it has that sort of, that, uh, that uh, gentleness and cleanness that we would prefer in the world. Yeah, and there's not a lot of emotional fallout either, which is reflecting on Cozy Mysteries. Yeah, right. It, which, which is funny because they make such a big deal of the lead up to the death and it's all about solving the death, but the people who are affected by it are just minor players and there's never really any intense reactions. And Matt brought up a point a while ago about how the deaths in these Cozy Mysteries are always justifiable which is mm-hmm. odd as well. Like, well, they are a mean villain. So they, they got what they deserved, um, which is often, which is majority of the time. No, well, no one really deserves to be murdered regardless, but here it's always, they, they got what they were asking for. And that's weird as well. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that really resonates with me. The idea that I do wonder how much my enjoyment of the genre comes from the order that they, they imagine a world where there is, always justice that somebody is going to be held accountable and that there was a reason and even and oftentimes there's even a, a reason to explain why that person was murdered in the first place like they're unpleasant <laughs> yeah. which again is not a not a justification but there's just something about balance in there and Jillian I, I think you really hit the nail on the head with the one thing I feel like that would maybe make the genre more terrible to experience would be to experience the grief of the family and of the friends Mm -hmm. of the people who died, but we never really stay with those people. And the times that we have, and there have been a a few books that we've read and talked about in the show that do flirt with it. And it's always kind of shocking when, Mm -hmm. when, when you come to that chapter and you're experiencing a a character and grief, because it isn't something that is often given much space in a cozy mystery. Yeah, the people who die are just, I think, ghosts to begin with. Like, they're already dead to begin with. They have really no substance or an, a solar system of people that care about them. They're just characters. And Ooh, solar system, bringing it back to the song. <laughs> yeah, got it stuck in my head. I got, I, I generally am obsessed with that song. So thank you, Brian. Thank you. Most welcome. I mean, this is a bit of a sort of circuitous um, journey we took, but I, I suppose I, I should try at some point to, answer your question, Matt. Otherwise, you know, there's no reason why I'm here. Um, and that, that question you, you started me off with was about how, you, how the cozy related to um, the, the beautiful or the sublime. And uh, that is an interesting idea, I think. Uh, the, the vital uh, touchstone source here is a, a book from uh, 1757 uh, by uh, the Irish uh, philosopher Edmund Burke uh, called a Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and Beautiful, which is a great, great book, actually. It's really, really stunning. Um, Burke is concerned there that those words are abused. Like we, we, People use the word beautiful and sublime, but they use them incorrectly. They abuse them, and he wants to um, restore them to their proper meaning. Now, I like this idea about trying to restore words to their proper meaning. Um, 
I, I find this a lot with, you know, in our time, the kind of word, I mean, he, he focuses on sublime a lot uh, as a word that's sort of abused. I think that probably is abused a lot now, the word sublime. Um, I, I hear it, and I never hear it used, I think, correctly. Uh, but awesome is a word like that now, I think. We, we use awesome to mean really anything, I think. Uh, a cake, a sandwich. It's not something that actually really provokes a sense of, of awe. So Burke's trying to say, what is that? What does the word sublime really mean? What does the word beautiful mean? And the crucial thing in that book is that those words, sublime and beautiful, are really opposed. It's not that sublime is... I mean, I remember reading something about Whitney Houston, uh, and the journalist was saying that Whitney Houston's voice was a, a sublime mix of gospel purity, pop prissiness, and bedroom purr. Hmm. Now, I'm going to say, I, I, I very rarely am able to use the words bedroom purr. So I just, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, but the idea of that being a sublime, what he means by, by describing her voice in that way, I think, is that it's, it's a very beautiful voice. Like her voice was sort of beautiful. So sublime would just be an extreme version of, of the beautiful. Burke disagrees with that completely. Something that is sublime cannot be beautiful, and something that is beautiful cannot be sublime. They are completely opposed. So the features of each are spelt out very, very clearly and in a mutually exclusive way by him. So the sublime for Burke is something that causes us terror, but we can be sufficiently removed from it at a certain distance that we can get delight. So... The, now, this is an interesting idea in Burke, I think, and we can talk about this a little bit, perhaps, uh, that there are certain things, that if you're in the midst of them, they would really be terrifying. You just want to run away. But if you've got enough of a distance, you can experience that thing from a distance and find a certain kind of delight in it. And I suppose we can all think of examples of that. Going back to words that maybe are overused, and I feel like we're the chief uh, overusers of the mm. word cozy. Okay. Yeah, there's, no, there's not a lot of synonyms for that, so. No. Yeah, it, even on the show, we'll apply the word cozy to something that maybe is just nice. When I think we really are pressed to define cozy, uh, we typically, because we, we, we do it a lot on the show, <laughs> I feel like we often come back to a couple of things. One is... Um, Nostalgia, that's like one thing that comes back a lot when it comes to coziness. That might be just a, a feeling. But also safety. Mm. So when I think of like the the coziest thing I can really possibly experience, it might be I'm in a cabin and I have a nice fire roaring and I have a book in my hand. And outside of that cabin is awful it's just like a horrible snowstorm there's i can't go outside i would i would die if i went too far into it and so i think that's where coziness and the sublime really do have intersection because yeah. there's you know if if the sublime is the the terrifyingly beautiful that we can appreciate from a distance i think that is coziness too yeah that's interesting yeah i took well that video you sent of edmund burke um, or just like an explanation of his definitions. What stood out to me was that it's a, almost like it's a feeling outside of yourself. It's almost detaching from consciousness. Um, like I imagine it almost like an intense feeling of loneliness because loneliness can sometimes feel 
soothing and and like intoxicating at the same time but it's also a a negative feeling like I imagine you know standing in the middle of a desert in the night which it could be you know scary you're all alone but also the expanse of your view is so overwhelming in in a good way so I took sublime as an overwhelming emotion sometimes that's outside of your own being or consciousness um that you can take pleasure in. I'm not sure if that's accurate. That's absolutely perfect. Yeah. I mean, it's a collection of these, these qualities that build up um, a feeling of the sublime in Burke, astonishment, uh, terror, obscurity, power, vastness, uh, loud sounds, um, solitude. Um, So those things which is sort of terrifying, we can experience a certain kind of delight in them. And it's predicated, he thinks, on a certain sense of pain. And the idea of pain, if not fully um, engulfing us, can cause us a certain kind of delight. Now, that's very different from this notion of the beautiful, which is, to my mind at least, seems much closer to the to the cozy. Beautiful is always premised on some feeling of, of pleasure, uh, and the, it's, it's a very obvious pleasure as opposed to the sort of distant horror um, delight that the sublime conjures up. And he, it's very controversial stuff in, in Burke. Uh, the, his idea of the beautiful revolves around four qualities. And I, I think it might be nice for us to think about these in relation to aspects of the cozy. Uh, first of all, the, the beautiful is characterized by smallness. So nothing beautiful for, for Burke can be big. It has to be small. And I'm thinking about a cozy, a cozy cabin, to use your example, Matt. It wouldn't be this vast sort of barn-like thing. It would have to be small. You could feel enclosed in it. So there's that small element. Then it's, for Burke, it makes a great play of this. Um, beautiful things have to be smooth. They can't be rough. So there has to be a smoothness, either a literal smoothness or actually in terms of sounds. Sounds have to be smooth or um, lines have to be smooth in painting. Um, delicacy is another thing. So a flower can be beautiful, but a, you know, a big rugged oak tree wouldn't be beautiful. It's too solid. It has to have a certain kind of delicacy uh, to it. And then there's this thing about gradual variation of lines that he says has to be there in, in beautiful up. But it, what I thought was very interesting in what he says about, about beauty is that when we're in the presence of beauty, it has a physiological effect on our, our bodies. Now, I'm interested in what you two might say about whether this seems to be the, the same thing that happens when one is experiencing coziness. So if you don't mind, there's just a brief quote from Burke that I'd like to throw your way and see what you think about it. He says, this is what happens to us when we're, when we're in the presence of something beautiful, whether that's a painting or a, a person or a view, a piece of music. He says, uh, the head reclines something on one side. The eyelids are more closed than usual and the eyes roll gently with the inclination to the object. The mouth is a little open and the breath drawn slowly with now and then a low sigh. 
The whole body is composed and the hands fall idly to the side. All this is accompanied with an inward sense of melting and languor. See, I like that. You know, beauty produces a relaxation of the fibres. And I think maybe, does, does not the cosy do the same? Definitely. And I think that you're right to say that the, the definition of beautiful more closely aligns with a cosy mystery. I would assume a genre such as true crime would be more in terms of the sublime. Yeah. yeah. True detective. Think about true detective. No one would say that was cozy or beautiful, but the horror of it is, is it does present with something sublime. Yes. I think by that definition, yeah, the coziness would sound even just beyond the, the book definition of coziness would, I mean, I think oftentimes when we're approaching a cozy topic, we're thinking about its value as something that's calming yeah. And something that's sort of rest- restorative, right? Yeah. Uh, that's why we talk a lot about uh, wellness on this show or self-care. So I, I think in, in that case, yeah, it, it sounds like coziness would align more to the beautiful by that definition. Although yeah. I also feel like at the same time, and maybe this is the same way that awesome has, you know, broadened its definition to apply to sandwiches as well now. Um, there, there also is something cozy about being just outside of danger. Yeah. And that could feel more sublime and the cozy mystery in particular. I think the, there's something small about cozy mysteries insofar as the, the worlds of that are so insular. Yeah. The, the real fearful things about that experience, like if you were actually going, you know, to experience a murder or be around somebody who had been murdered, that's avoided in that genre. And in which case I feel like the genre would be more beautiful in that it avoids those more grotesque elements. And I think it's digestible as well. I, from what you, the definition you described of beautiful, it's easy to take in. It requires little effort. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this thing, this, these cozy mysteries, uh, an interesting combination of sublime and beautiful elements, and they exist in this sort of uneasy tension. Because you're, you're thinking about crime, violent crimes, murders, but they're set into a kind of warm and, and gentle, relaxing mode. I mean, I'm thinking about the character of, again, just to go back to Father Brown, which is something that Manguso talks about in the article. He's a very sort of cuddly figure in a way like gk chesterton himself so you've got that kind of warmth of the character plus the crime um and that produces an an odd tension i think between violence and the safety that we feel Um, so that's it's strange and maybe the appeal of it is it does bridge those two elements of things that we find appealing Beautiful things on the one hand, sublime things on the other. And we can, in this one thing, we can fuse them all together. I'm just thinking, you know, some a show like, you know, Dateline, for example, the crimes that they often talk about are horrifying and they will describe the crime and its brutality. And sometimes it involves children. Most of the time mm-hmm. it's, you know, violence against women. Um, but it's, you know, it's an hour long. They're sitting in a you know, a quaint studio, you have these narrators who have soothing voices 
And so I think that would be like a perfect example of, of that, that mixture that you're describing. It's, um, it's, it's horror from a distance. Yes. As you described. Well, horror from a distance is a, it's odd. I mean, I'm, I love the, the horror genre. I love movies about ghosts and, and aliens and things. I, it's nothing I like more than sort of settling myself into the sofa with a drink, popcorn, watching this stuff. And it feels like here's all the horror and yet I'm safe. And the mm-hmm. desire for that, that, that safety and the feel of it, it's, it's just a movie. It's just something, it's just a set of ideas um, and fantasies. It's a, it's a strange thing. It's part of the, the weirdness of being a human being that we find enjoyment in that. I think if we didn't have these digestible forms of horror, then we'd probably all fall apart because then all we'd be left with is just the actual horror. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, 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 like you said, it, it, it keeps us safe. We'd actually have to confront, you know, these uncomfortable acts of violence that are occurring around us all the time. But if we're in you know, the safety of our homes, it's a lot more easier to, to deal with and handle for our mental state. Also a thing for me is what I find cozy about crime in general is the need to understand and to you mm. learn through trying to understand. There's a lot of crime that involves, you know, religion and abuse of power and, you know, the why of things. And so that's, I think, since I was little, I've always been drawn to that, just the, uh, trying to understand. And I think yeah. trying to find understanding and meaning is also a cozy act in itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a fascinating idea. I, I, I like the interjection of uh, the idea of coziness into the quest for meaning. This is a very weighty discussion, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating, though, because going back to the, the video you shared with us, Burke's definition of sublime, and I remember reading some part of it that suggested there's an element of rehearsal hmm. where we're terrified and those nerves are kicked in and engaged. And yeah. so we sort of have almost a play element. And I was just watching something not too recently. It was, it was by NPR, and it was discussing the human brain on play <laughs> and how uh, there was a scientist that did an experiment with rats and removed um, any kind of like higher processing part of their brains. And just to see if they, what behaviors they still exhibited. And one of them was play. They would still tussle with mm-hmm. the other rats, but there's something really like hard coded even in us about play. And then there was another experiment with those same rats where there was two male rats trying to vie for the attention of one female rat. (laughs) And one had been deprived of play and isolated and the other had been, had had more play and practice. And the one that had played more got, got the lady rat. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so I, I wonder too, like when we're, when we're looking at these things and trying to understand these really for our brains, huge concepts that overwhelm us and or or frighten us um if there isn't some element of rehearsal or yeah. preparedness like i sometimes i'm watching I, I think it engages us when we're watching like dateline i'm i'm sitting there being like well i wouldn't do that why'd they yeah. do that you know why why wouldn't you run away immediately and 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 you you think about or even a horror movie right it's it's always maddening to watch the characters make decisions that are you know not in their best interest for survival 
And in a way, we almost are rehearsing our own, like if we're ever in a situation as horrible as that, we're practicing how we would behave. That's really, that's really, really interesting. I remember reading years ago a book by Anthony Nuttall called uh, Why Does Tragedy Give Pleasure? Which is that old thing. Why would you go and watch you know, Romeo and Juliet or King Lear or read Thomas Hardy's novels? These things were dreadfully sad things. And his explanation is just as you're saying it. So it provides you with a, a, a set of conceptual tools and sort of um, laboratory conditions in which you can rehearse uh, yourself for those conditions if and when they come which is why something like king lear about the, the process of aging which is unpleasant to, to expose ourselves to king lear and his fate but we can then orient ourselves to a future and approach that with nobility i, I like that idea yeah it kind of remembers of reminds me of a preppers like doomsday preppers yeah. oh yeah yeah and it always gets i always get frustrated whenever i see like there's all these tv shows about preppers and it seems as a lot of people are <laughs> more obsessed with death than they are with living like I, yeah. that's such a common theme and i was one of the things that i really wanted to ask you is why do you think in general we just have this ongoing uh, you know obsession of death not just because it's going to happen to us all one day but mm. there's something i can't put my finger on it but we you know there's so many books and movies about themes of death metaphors and preppers and cults and all these yeah. things like why is there such a draw to it do you think from a philosophical perspective well that's a big big question i mean <laughs> i suppose the, the root of it is we're the only seems to be we're the only species on the planet that has an awareness in the abstract that we're going to die, that mm -hmm. we know it's going to happen, and we think what will happen after that is such a mystery, whether it's the end or whether there's something beyond, beyond death. And that focuses our attention quite, quite markedly. Um, and I think that's probably what lies at the root of it. Yes, yeah, the mystery of it all. Yeah. To bring it back to cozy mysteries, I feel like there's something pragmatic about the way that it balances those two things or life and death. Because on the one hand, I mean, viewing it as kind of like a growing your knowledge of things that are horrifying, you, you know, learn a lot about household poisons and <laughs> other true. things that could kill you in, a, mm. <laughs> in certain contexts. I've, I've learned a lot of different ways to kill people by reading cozy <laughs> mysteries or ways that I could die. And um, at the same time, I also pick up all these amazing cupcake recipes. And that's, you know, that's really living in life and, and, and living life to its fullest. So, you know, I, I think there's a way that Cozy Mysteries sort of really, they do kind of balance the sublime and beautiful by those definitions because they're always kind of in that, in that tension, right, of like, yeah. we know we have to move on, we have to focus on the good things. And they kind of, I mean, they, and they kind of force you to by brushing away some of the things that would in, in, in life be on people's minds. Um, but they also fundamentally address the most, like the, the biggest mystery for human beings, which is death. So it, it kind of does exist in that medium space. Yeah, because it's not entirely escapist because it, it's, they're not saying death doesn't happen, bad things don't happen. But it's almost like these things happen they're bad but we can cope with them mm. and we can still find a space for human relationship humor love in the midst of that uh, which is quite nice in i mean i'm, I'm frequently at my you know, ripe old age now sort of uh, turned off by the, the sort of uh, unpleasant sadistic movies 
the sort of the vision of life where human relationships are impossible, everyone's out for themselves and so on. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the nice thing about the, the, the cozy mystery ideal is that it doesn't turn its back on the idea that bad things happen, mm-hmm. but we can navigate our way through them. Yeah, I can't think of a better um, ode to life goes on than a cozy mystery. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> as soon as the death happens, they were, they already moved on like 10 pages. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, t- time to restock the library. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pour a cup of coffee. Here's a chapter about someone trying to write a mystery. <laughs> it's really true. Yeah. I mean, like even true crime, right? Like I struggle to watch that the, like nowadays or really ever. I think, and, it, and it does seem like the older I get, the more averse I get to putting myself into watching things that are are like that but i don't think it's because i don't find that fascinating and i think true crime is really interesting and and you can learn a lot from it but there's also a hopelessness that you kind of feel sometimes leaving that sort of material where you wonder like well what are we all even trying for if these are the horrible things that exist in the world and the things that we do to each other and what's so nice about a cozy mystery is that it reminds you of the ways that we persevere and the things that are worth living for Versus maybe some things that are wholly sublime, perhaps, that are really kind of just like awe-inspiring, but maybe don't, but they kind of just inspire fear ultimately, or maybe some pleasure, but also terror. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the good thing about the sublime, the experience of the sublime is it does descenter the human. Because at least as, as, as someone like Burke wants to describe it, when you're in a vast natural landscape, like, I don't know, pick your favorite national park, you know, Denali, um, Grand Teton, Death Valley. You realize how small human beings are, and it should um, produce a sense of humility, I think. Mm-hmm. That bit's good. Um, yeah, and that, and that can be freeing, too. That can, I mean, that yeah. can feel great. Yeah. The, the, I just don't really like these things where it goes too far and says there's no significance in anything. And uh, by watching something like True Detective, the first which I actually really liked, but I did find at the end a kind of overwhelming pessimism and uh, cynicism about human relations. I found hard to hard to stomach. Yeah, it's like we also exist in a world where there's a a goose in Echo Park that follows a man home every day. Like <laughs> there are these <laughs> inspiring stories all around yeah. us about weird natural phenomenon of like species even getting along. There's there's some there's something randomly benevolent about nature as as much as there is horrific about how uncaring it often seems yeah. also. Yeah. There's a wonderful philosopher from the beginning of the 19th century, William Paley, who has this wonderful description in his book, Natural Theology, about uh, the natural world and how happy everything is. Uh, it's absurd in a way, very whimsical. But he has this line about he's watching fish in a lake swimming around. And he says, the fish are so happy they don't know what to do with themselves. And I always liked that. Like there's uh, the little fish swimming around with their friends. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, in a way, it's, it's absurd. But, you know, it's a, there's, there's a vision of, of felicity in, in life there, which is refreshing. Because you know, philosophers tend to immerse ourselves in, you know, those sort of grim, you know, uh, black-suited, wearing, gaulois-smoking <laughs> miserableists. And sometimes it's nice to have a, a happy little man appearing or and saying something like Paley does. 
Yeah, yeah. just happy swimming fish. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a lot of delight in things that are absurd. Yeah, indeed. I am curious, like, while we're on the topic of coziness and philosophy, just to lean on your expert opinion, is is there, like, a school of philosophy? Like, if we were to do further reading that might lend itself to exploring coziness or like centers itself in, in an idea of cozy being something that's important? The closest I can get to it is precisely what we've been talking here, I think, about that stuff in Burke, about feeling relaxed among beautiful things and feeling like this sort of fluidity in your, in your body. Um, I'll think about it and get back to you. The, the, I mean, you're not going to find much of this stuff in Nietzsche or Schopenhauer. He's a much sort of harsher figure. Someone like Jeremy Bentham. Maybe that. Maybe I'd get you to look at Bentham. Bentham was a very um, sort of cozy sort of figure in himself. He would, had, a, had a cat called the, the Reverend Dr. John Langhorn, which is a great name for a cat. Yes, yeah, so that's and, 100 cozy points right there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then his, his house was full of, of mice. He couldn't bear to, to kill the mice. And so uh, all his manuscripts kept at University College London. I've got these little teeth marks in them because the mice would eat their way through his, through his manuscripts. But he said life was a, very much about uh, accumulating pleasures of one kind or another. And I think coziness is a certain kind of pleasure. So that hedonistic lifestyle that, that someone like Bentham recommends possibly would go well with the quest for coziness. So coziness is almost... Like hedonism, is what you're saying? I wouldn't be averse to making that conclusion. Yeah, I can, I, <laughs> now I think about it, it really is. It's just all about finding pleasure for yourself. Yeah, yeah that's yes. true. I mean, it, it is often an, an isolated activity. I mean, I think you can, I think community can be cozy, though. Like, I, I think it is a broad enough thing where you can find it in a lot of different experiences. However, I do feel like when I really push myself to imagine like the most essential version of cozy, I don't imagine other people. No, it's I just, all I just, me. I center myself in it. Right. I, I really like Jillian, what you said about just kind of that, like the, the pleasure of loneliness and isolation, but that's also painful. Like, yeah. But there's like something nice about the thoughtfulness of being alone. And, and I think that's also in, in terms of like the essential cozy, like there's something about being alone that, that lends itself to that. You give me a lot to think about here. Well, I think there's a niche, Brian, for the cozy philosopher, and I feel like you should do a road <laughs> show. A room, there's a room for like a, a a Dr. Brian Clack school of cozy philosophy. Is all I'm saying. I'm going to write a book and make thousands and thousands <laughs> of dollars on the, on the nature of cozy. Perhaps the three of us can write it together. That's yeah. right. The, <laughs> as influential as Edmund Burke, the All Things Cozy podcast hosts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh boy, that's funny. Well, thank you so much, Brian. This has been like such a wonderful exploration of of really what is pleasurable about coziness and what we're enjoying and what makes a cozy mystery tick, what we're actually resonating with. Oh, well, it was an absolute delight to speak with you both. Um, Thank you so much for inviting me on. Thank thank you. you. It's been a delight. Now it's time for us to meditate on the philosophy of some candles. So that was a really clunky segue, and I, I, that's like that was almost disrespectfully bad to to Brian. Thank you again, Brian, for joining us and talking about those really interesting topics. And I, I think there's more to explore there, and I, and I can't wait to dive in again. Jillian, though, has a fresh new candle for us to sniff. Take it away, Jillian. 
that I do. Uh, the candle that I am sniffing this week is from <laughs> Southern Elegance Candles, and the scent is Charleston Sweet Tea. And the description for this candle is, Sipping sweet tea on the front porch is a Southern tradition. This blend is not your grandma's typical iced tea, but a complex tincture of currant, white tea, and enchanting floral overtones. This sophisticated blend of sweet tea and berries reminds you of a time when sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair and waving as the neighbors go by was practically an art form. So that's quite the description. That is definitely putting me in a place in time that I've never lived in, but... Yeah, I've never <laughs> lived in... I, I, I was waving to no neighbors. <laughs> exactly. I was hiding from the neighbors. Yeah. Uh, but... To this, to this day, still doing... Just scuttling along, <laughs> trying not to get noticed by anybody. Yeah. But if you, you know, are that person who's waving to your neighbors and maybe from Charles, Charleston or a neighboring city, then this scent might be for you. And I, I will admit, it definitely is sweet, as it is a sweet tea scent. But I was curious... And maybe it's a, perhaps it's a little too sweet for me, but what I will say is that this candle has quite the punch and it will fill up an entire room. And that's something that I look for in candles because I don't want a candle that I can barely smell. Uh, what's the point? So this candle has a great punch. And there's so many other great scents to choose from. Just browsing the website, they have Key West, The Bayou, Savannah. So it's just again, it's this love letter um, to the South, the founder and CEO is Deshaun Russell, and I got it pretty quick shipping, I would say within a week. So that's cool too, especially in these times, it's hard to get things shipped. And yeah, I, I, if you like scents that's not floral, but still sweet, if that makes sense, then this one's does for it, you. Does it deliver the sweet tea scent? You know, I, I'm not a connoisseur of sweet tea. I will admit that. So I don't even know what I was sniffing. So I don't, I don't think I've what ever it had like sweet to you? Like what, tea. What are you getting from it? It did, you know, smell sense of tea, but I don't know if what sweet tea particularly smells smells like. That's what the sense are in the sweetness, but it is a very very sweet scent. And when I first lit it, I wasn't a fan, to be quite honest. But I think over time, the scent didn't become over, as overpowering. And what I take away from it the most is just how, when I light it, my whole living room and kitchen is filled with the scent. But it's not a floral sweetness. It's hard to describe. Um, describing it immediately makes me smell sweet tea. And it sounds like what you're describing, which is it's like a sweet scent, but there's kind of like a a little bit of a bitter tannin flavor to it too. Does, are you getting that kind of like, you, you say there's like some tea note. Yeah. And, the, and then one of the notes is that it's a white tea. And that that definitely comes through, I think, most of all. The floral overtones... I believe they're at the top of the candle because when I first lit it, I did get that florally scent that I'm not too keen on. But as time progressed, it became more of the white tea scent, which hmm. which is nice. Well, I, I love the focus of the company. It sounds like they have a lot of different scents that are worth exploring. Yeah, and each one has a, a cool little description. And I like candle sites that take the time to give a story to the candle. So just look, take a look at their site, Southern Eleganza Candles. And if you're from the South, then I'm sure this is right up your alley. Southern Eleganza, check it out. Before we go, we just want to shout out some of our amazing listeners and highlights in our cozy community that have happened recently. First of all, huge thank you to Brian W. for writing a kind email with tips about baking with vegan milk. You 
heeded my call. Thank you. I had been wondering about that for a long time. I finally felt brave enough to ask that question on the air. <laughs> and you gave a suggestion of, of oat milk or oatly, oatly has a brand called F- Full Fat, which I'm down for. I'm always living the full fat lifestyle. And so <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that re- recommendation. I'm, I'm really going to, when I bake next, I will try to use that and I'll let everyone know how it turns out. Yeah, it was a really kind email. So thank you so much. So we have a few new members to our Facebook group, Bobby Besley. Thank you for the kind comments and sharing great content already. And the same goes for Ashley Coker. You had this really cool poll and I feel like a grandma because I don't know how to participate in it. <laughs> but the question was, are you a light cozy or dark cozy? And that was a cool thing. So I don't think we ever had a poll in the Facebook group. That's fascinating. So thank you so much for posting that and joining. Thank you also to Norma G for sharing your delicious thread about making stuffed tofu. Yep. Always there for the food content. And thank you always (laughs) for tagging us on things on Twitter and alerting us to cozy food trends. And then thank you to Kara KH and Eric Howden. You keep the group um, alive with your animal pics, lots of farm animal content, which is cool from goats to chickens to rabbits. We got them all. Ducks. Oh, yeah. And also congratulations to Kate Littleton for perfecting uh, butter with a side of bread's banana bread recipe. I know Jillian's really proud of you for that. (laughs) And also the fact that your banana bread has beautiful little banana slices on top. I'm very jealous of that level of craftsmanship. We know you had that based on your uh, vegetable tart. Congratulations on perfecting it. I'm, you know, I I should share my recipe for uh, chocolate chip banana bread. I feel Mm. like maybe it's time for that. That sounds really good. Battle of the banana breads. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, thank you to everyone, and welcome. For those who have followed us on Instagram and Facebook, please encourage your friends to do so if you think they'd be interested in our podcast. It's really cool to see our social media accounts growing with new followers. And last but not least, thank you always to our generous patrons who keep the show going with your contributions. If you'd like to support the show, you can at patreon.com slash allthingscozy. Any and all level of contribution is appreciated. And you will get a cozy little piece of swag, like the, a sticker or a magnet. Yeah, so thank you for all those who support us. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back in your ears in two more weeks with a fresh new cozy topic. Until then, stay, stay cozy. cozy.